Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today on the program, Charles Martin looks at the flood legends and how those legends all point to the truth of the global flood spoken of in the Bible. I want to give you an update on our Meeting the Mission effort. Meeting the Mission is our special effort to match the $1 million gift SWRC has been blessed with. We're hearing from folks all over the United States and Canada. When you give to Southwest Radio Ministries, your gift is being matched. You will double your impact and ensure that Watchmen on the Wall and all of our ministries will be able to bring clarity to the chaos for many years to come. Friends, would you consider giving $90 in recognition of our 90th anniversary? Like all gifts given at this time, your support will be doubled and go toward meeting the match. 1-800-652-1144 is the number to call and show your support for SWRC. You can also be part of the match by giving on our special website, supportswrc.com. $90 in honor of our 90th anniversary would be an outstanding way to show your support, and it's doubled during this dollar-for-dollar match. Thank you for your support of Watchmen on the Wall and Southwest Radio Ministries. The story of the deluge, or the global flood of Noah, permeates nearly every culture in the world in some way, shape, or form. While details vary between the different cultures, the same basic elements occur in all versions. Through these legends, the epic event of the flood has remained woven into the tapestry of cultural history. Here to help us explore and understand these flood legends is staff evangelist Josh Davis and today's guest, Charles Martin. Well, let's get into the flood legends book. What audience did you have in mind as you wrote this book? I wrote the book when I was in college. I had to write a thesis for my major. And I was surrounded, I went to a liberal college, and I was surrounded by people who you could believe anything you wanted as long as it wasn't Christianity. Hmm. Well, you want to pray to various Hindu gods and burn incense? Great, you're welcome. You want to sit in complete silence for an hour as a Zen Buddhist? No problem. You think that the earth spontaneously created itself through evolution? Great, no problem. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, you need to let go of archaic ideas. Hmm. Stop being so primitive. And I guess I I lived a sheltered life before that because it just baffled me. The intellectual inconsistency that you could believe any god, any goddess, any anything, but as soon as you believe the Bible, you are primitive. And I thought, well, that's, that's inconsistent, that's hypocritical. And, and I had a real moment, though, before that, where I kind of went, well, is that true? And I took a deep dive into the Bible. I took a deep dive into creation science. I took a deep dive into other, other religions, not, not joining them, but looking into them. And mm-hmm. the more I looked, the more the truth of Scripture came out. And I said, you don't have to check your brain at the door. To believe the Bible. You don't have to be a moron to believe the Bible. Right. And I said, you know, I think I want to write something that, that takes a quote-unquote educated and scholarly look at biblical text, and instead of beating people over the head with the Bible's true, the Bible's true, saying, here's what all of these religions say. Here's what all of these cultures say. Here's the physical evidence we have that supports what the Bible says. You don't have to check your brain to believe this. And so my primary target audience was atheists Mm. or people who were, I'll say, so open-minded their brains had fallen out. Yes. They were willing to accept anything and everything but the Bible. Mm. 
and to say, no, 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 look, look at what the evidence actually points to. Let's look at the scholarly evidence and see where it points to. Instead of Bible thumping, we'll just look at everything else and go, and it points back to this. Mm-hmm. Right, and that removed all of the objections. The objections were, well, you're using the Bible. Okay, well, I used all kinds of texts, right. including Hindu texts, mm-hmm. that I translated myself, which is another argument. Well, you don't know what the Bible meant because it's been translated. Okay, I'll translate this myself, and I'll show you what it says, and it supports the Bible. That was my primary audience, all of the people who, who scoff at the Bible because it was primitive. Yes, and that's a great approach. The book that I wrote is called Fake Jesus, and that's what my first part of the book is just all about really drilling down to follow the evidence where it leads. Here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. Look at it. Follow these things where it goes. If you want to be intellectually honest, you've got to follow the evidence where it leads. And yet yeah. so many people who are what I call pseudo-intellectual because they say, you know, we're so smart, we're so evolved, we've arrived, and yet they're not willing to examine the evidence. They're not willing to take a hard look at the facts. They just dismiss it at the door and and say, I'm, I'm on to something else. So I think that that's a yep. wonderful approach in how you take that, trying to bridge this gap between the head and the heart and, and really appealing to their mind and really appealing to their intellect to consider these kinds of things. And you're talking mainly about the flood of Noah. And of course, you look at all the other various flood accounts, flood legends, and you use the word myth in a different way than I've heard it used before. How do you define myth in your book? My use of the word myth has gotten me in, in trouble. With, I'm afraid to say a lot of Christians, they don't like that I use it. But the Greek word myth just means story. Mm-hmm. In our modern language, we, we take it to mean, you know, usually religious fairy tale. And so we refer to Greek myths. We refer to Norse myths. But myth really just meant story. And it could be true. It could be false. It could be a blend of truth and, and fiction. I tend to use it broadly. Mm. I let the stories themselves give credence to whether they're true or not. Mm. And, and just use the word myth to describe them because that's what they are, they're stories. So what's the relationship between myths and history? How do we discern what is a true story, a, a true myth? versus a fairy tale kind of a myth. The relationship between myth and history is, is complicated. It's very intricate and detailed. But the way I, I tend to look at it is there are two different types of myths. There's what I would call a, a myth of event, that is something that has happened, and a myth of nature that describes why something we observe happens. So, for example, and I think this is the one I use in the book, is the myth of Apollo's chariot to explain the sun going through the sky. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that the sun's not a chariot. We know that. We've taken pictures. We've flown past the sun now with our probes and, and taken pictures, and we're quite comfortable with the fact that it's not a guy in a chariot. News of event, though, are not so easy to discern, and that's where it does get complicated because as people, we tell stories. Myths, if you, if you want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we tell stories that happened, and sometimes we tell stories that didn't. And, you know, maybe we do that for entertainment. Maybe we do that because we're lying for some reason. Maybe we're blending the two because there is a history that happened, but we can't go back to the source. 
and our kids ask us questions as we're telling the story. And I'm talking about throughout history, not personally, but mm-hmm. but kids ask questions, right? They ask a question, you can't answer it. You can't go back to the source. So you kind of make up the the answer, right? If if we were to take the flood legend and we were to say, you know, Noah's going to tell his grandkids about it, it's probably pretty accurate. But eventually Noah dies. And those great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, well, they've heard the stories, but they don't remember all of them. And they can't go back and ask because, I mean, because he's dead. And so they're going to fill in gaps the best they can. And then you're going to get a few more generations. And you're going to get kids asking more questions. Well, which mountain was it? Well, by this time, families have moved. They've spread out. They're gone. They're not even, they're not even in, in Mesopotamia anymore. They're going to point to the nearest mountain out of their window and go, it was that mountain right there. Well, now your mountain just changed, right? Mm-hmm. Discerning the truth of it can be really, really difficult. That's when I like to go back to common sense. If I'm reading a flood legend and I'm told that two people were on the boat and that from those two people the rest of mankind came, I'm going to go, that's probably unlikely. But if I have a boat with eight people on it and I'm told the rest of mankind came from those eight people, that's a whole lot more likely. Which one intellectually, right, setting aside faith, setting aside Christianity and the Holy Spirit telling me the Bible's true, setting all of that aside, which one am I more likely going to pick? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be the one with eight people. Do I pick the tiny cube that's six feet by six feet by six feet? Or do I pick the massive boat that's the size of nine railroad cars? Yes. I'm going to pick the big one, right? It's very tough, and it's, it's not an exact science, and I, I'm never going to claim it is, but it's not impossible either. We're talking with author Charles Martin Jr. about his book, Flood Legends, and you can reach our ministry at 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144, or by visiting us online, swrc.com. One of the important concepts that you introduce early in the book and that continues on throughout the majority of the book is the concept of a telephone mythology theory. Uh, What is the telephone mythology? I don't know that I I actually came up with this. I think other people have probably come up with it, but I delve into it because I believe that's a very true part of our history as, as people. The game of telephone is when you have a group of people sitting in a line or maybe they're in a circle and one person whispers something to the person next to him or her. And that person whispers to the next, and the next, and the next, and the next, and all the way around the circle, or all the way to the end of the line. And then the last person says, here's the statement, and inevitably it's changed, right? Maybe not a whole lot. Maybe it is a whole lot. Never completely. It's never 100% different. You might have, I don't like ketchup on my hot dog, turns into, I spilled ketchup on my shirt. That's why I don't like it on my hot dog, right? Things are going to change, but things are also going to stay the same, this really plays into the idea, the, the argument that all of the flood legends in the world were just made up, right? That would explain the differences, definitely, but we see very specific details that appear all over the world. I mentioned eight people in the boat, right? That's in the Bible, it's eight people. In various North American tribes, it's eight people. In India, their flood story has eight people. You have eight people all over the place. That doesn't make sense if they all just made up of the story. It doesn't make sense that almost every flood legend has some sort of animal checking for land after the end of it. 
there are just so many of these details. The boat coming to rest in a mountain. Oh, my gosh. Mountains are all over the place, mm-hmm. including areas of the world where there aren't any mountains. Their flood stories have, have the boat landing in a mountain. This only makes sense if it were a real event and it were passed down from generation to generation to generation. And then people say, well, yeah, but they're so different. Well, yeah, that comes back to what I was just talking about. The person who survived it died. Noah died. You can't go back to the source to find details. You're going to change it. You're going to make up stuff. You're going to get things wrong. Maybe it's not even an intentional change. It's just just a change. And telephone mythology is the only thing that actually explains both the similarities and the differences. And I think it's a crucial part to understanding our history. We're speaking with author Charles Martin Jr. about his book, Flood Legends. And again, you can reach our ministry at 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting swrc.com. What are some of the more popular flood legends that you discovered through your studies, perhaps from other cultures or other ones that you saw in your research? I think one of the most well-known ones is, is Deucalion and Pyrrha, which is, which is Greek. But to be honest with you, I actually find that one really boring. Hmm. Um, it's basically two people end up in a box, and then when they're done, they throw rocks, and the rocks become people. Hmm. Generally, the story of it. For some reason, that one has become very popular. One of my absolute favorite ones, though, is the story of Manu and the fish, and that, that comes from India. And we're told that Manu was a pious and righteous man who, because of his holiness, could stand on one foot with his arms outstretched, soaking in water for a thousand years, right? <laughs> Utterly ridiculous stuff, but, but really interesting. And one day, he rescues a fish, because the fish swims up to him and says, I'm going to get eaten, save me. And he rescues a fish, he feeds it, he takes care of it, he talks to it every day. And it grows and it grows and it grows, and then it reveals itself to be his god Brahma. And he says, I'm going to flood the earth, and I want you to build a boat, and I want you to put the seven rishis, and the rishis in Hindu mythology were sages that kind of appear here and there throughout mythology. And I want the eight of you to get on this boat, and you're going to survive this, this flood. And I did translate this myself, and so in the Hindu version, there is no doubt the earth was flooded. It says that the only thing that existed was sea and air, right? That the, the ship was reeling in the storm and being tossed about. And there's no question that at least the Hindus believed it was global. And then it's his job, along with the Rishis, to use their holiness to recreate everything. Plants, animals, you know, other people, all of that. I think what I really like about that story was it is so far removed from the Bible but it is so very similar to the Bible, right? Mm. Manu is, is the Hindu version of Noah, right? Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. Manu, while I certainly don't believe that a man could stand for a thousand years on one foot, in Hinduism that proves his holiness in their works-based society. That proves his holiness. He is their version of Noah. There are eight people on the boat. They pack the boat with the seeds, for eating and replanting. The earth is flooded. It's a huge, massive, chaotic storm, which we actually read in Genesis. The word is mabul. It's not flood. It's actually cataclysm. It's where we get the Greek word for cataclysm. Mm. And it's just the parallels between these two completely separate cultures were just astonishing to me. And I think that's probably why that one's my favorite, because it's very hard. In fact, my thesis advisor was a, was an atheist. She was a, a an open lesbian and hated everything Christian. 
Mm. And she read my thesis, and she said, well, it's, it's a little more religious than I would like. She said, but I can't get over the fact that there were eight people on the boat in all of these cultures. <laughs> and while that is certainly not a win, a win would be her coming to Christ, that was a small battle, you know, to step in the right direction at least. Yes. She tried so hard to intellectualize her way out of that one, mm. and she just couldn't. She couldn't do it. That was a little bonus. <laughs> she noticed that and went, I can't, I can't argue that. Yes. So do you have a favorite? Well, the one I like the best is, of course, the scriptural one, but uh, I found it fascinating because I had not really read a lot of the flood legends. And so when I was reading your book and going through it, just the similarities between the two, I don't know why this is, but I always like to see similarities between things and, and differences and, and compare and contrast. That's just the way I'm wired, I guess. But that's one thing that stood out to me was just how similar it was. And one thing that I remember reading a book that was describing uh, someone giving the reason for why they believe what they believe, almost an apologetics book. But when they came to Noah's Flood, they really began to equivocate and say it was just a local flood, and we're not denying biblical authority by saying it was just local. But again, reading through your book and others seeing through across the world, we're seeing all of these stories about a global flood, not just a small local flooding, but as you said, that cataclysmic kind of event. So that was very fascinating. Is there a next step? that if someone's interested after they've read your book, a a next step maybe that you would guide them to go to, to study these things some more, to dive into the flood and understanding how these things took place? My colleague, Nick Ligori, wrote a book called Echoes of Ararat. He actually let me read it early before it was published to give some feedback on it. And, And as I read it, I kept saying, man, I wish I'd had this book when I was writing mine, because mine would have been easier to write. He collected some 300 different stories, flood stories, just from North and South America. Wow. Just the two continents. They're great. He did the hard work, too, of cutting out stories that had very clearly come from Christian missionaries imposing the story into that culture. He tried to stick as best as he could with with the stories that just originated within those cultures. And the number of stories that parallel aspects of the biblical flood just, to me, just just absolutely prove that the biblical flood happened and was, was spread throughout cultures. A wonderful book. Yeah. Echoes of Ararat. Charles Weave, thank you so much for joining us on Watchmen on the Wall. Thanks for having me. Let me encourage you to get a copy of Charles Martin's book, Flood Legends. In Flood Legends, you'll discover detailed analysis of myth, legend, and historical details that are clues for a common global event. You'll discover unique research from a comparative study supporting the biblical history. Despite the striking similarities of these accounts, some mythologists have looked at the minor differences in the stories and declared, this never happened. There is another alternative, to accept that the different versions all refer to the same event, passed on from generation to generation through various developing cultures. Through these legends, this epic event has remained woven into the tapestry of cultural history, sharing not just the story of survival, but the power of obedience and the fulfillment of God's enduring promise. 
Flood Legends by Charles Martin is yours when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online swrc.com. Dr. Larry Spargimino comes now to share some needed encouragement from God's Word. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, Male and female created he them. The scripture says that God made man in his own image, and it also says God created man in his own image. What is the image of God in man? The image of God in man means that there is a correspondence between God and man. People are like God in some sense. It means that there is an image on a stamp, and it also means that stamp makes an image on a piece of paper. That image from the stamp on paper is in some way like the image on the stamp. Another example of the image of God is a photograph. A photograph of a person is not the person, but it is similar to the person. There is a correspondence. Maybe you are a businessman who travels a great deal, so you carry with you a photograph of your family. The photograph is not your family, but there is a correspondence between the photograph of your family and your family. When God created people in his image, people are not God, but there is a similarity, a correspondence between every person and God. That's true for men, and it is true for women. That's true for babies, even unborn babies, and it's also true of adults. The similarity between God and people is not physical. God does not have a physical body. The similarity between God and people is not our physical bodies. God does not have a head, arms, legs, and other physical features. So the question is, how are we like God? How are we similar? Where do we see the correspondence between God and people? Well, God has the ability to think and reason, so can people think and reason. God can communicate with language, so can people communicate with language. God has a sense of right and wrong and can make moral judgments and choices. So do people have a sense of right and wrong and can make moral judgments and choices. We can say something is right and we can say something is wrong. God has the capacity for relationships governed by love and commitment. So do people have the capacity for relationships governed by love and commitment. God can express a variety of emotions. So can people express a variety of emotions. God was made to have dominion over the creation. So was man made to have dominion over the creation. Now, this is not talking about destroying the earth, but it is talking about maintaining the earth and all of its resources being used for the glory of God. Both God and man have dominion. These moral, spiritual, and administrative capacities that are found in God are also found in man, but they are not found in the animal kingdom. This is what it means to be made or created in the image of God. 
When a person understands the meaning of the image of God in people, they can come to see how awful murder is. The Bible justifies capital punishment because when you murder a person, you are murdering someone who has been created in the image of God. Genesis 9 verse 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now some say they don't believe in capital punishment because they have a high view of man. But God's word says execution is right because God has a high view of man. So what has happened to the image of God in man? Because of the fall, the image of God has been effaced, but it has not been erased. The image still remains, but it has become blurred. Sometimes we have to take a photograph very quickly because we don't want to lose the shot, but the photo is a little blurred, a little out of focus. This is what has happened to the image of God in man. The image of God is there, but it has been effaced. A good example of this is found in James 3, verse 9. The text is talking about the tongue, how it is used for good as well as for bad purposes. The scripture says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude, that is the likeness or image, of God. So the image is still present in man. It has been effaced, but it has not been erased. Because man slash people have been made in the image of God, man has an inherent value. Animals, on the other hand, have only a functional value. For the non-Christian who denies that man has been created in God's image, even people have only a functional value. A person is valuable only because of what he or she can do. So if a person has some kind of a disability and is not able to function in a job or some other position, that person really should be deleted. That person has no value. Several years ago, there was a Dutch ballerina who developed arthritis in her toes. Now, for a ballerina to develop arthritis in her toes, that is the death sentence for a ballerina. It's like a pianist developing arthritis in his hands, that too is a death sentence. So the ballerina requested to be euthanized. She could no longer function and was not worth anything in that point of view. The image of God in man is a theological truth that has profound societal implications. It is God's answer to racism. It is God's answer to abortion on demand. You see, friends, when we disregard the Bible, we open the door to hell on earth. We are seeing hell on earth today. Why? Because we've turned our backs on God. This has happened to us. Why? Because we have forgotten God. We have left him out of the picture. Once again, then, the Bible is eminently practical and wonderful in its instruction to us. It helps boys and girls. It helps men and women. It helps couples, husbands, and wives. Look to the Bible. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And when Jesus comes into your heart, you have new life, new insight. You love God, you love people, and you love the Bible. 
The book Flood Legends by Charles Martin is your look inside these legends and ultimately the truth that is found in Scripture and affirmed by these legends. Order Flood Legends when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, we begin a brand new series, Solving the Mystery of Jesus. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.